Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation, but it's not a coronation you'd expect because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. The sermon text this week is from Mark chapter two, verses 13 through 27. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But, the, <clears throat> but new wine is for fresh wine skins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, 
The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Join me in prayer as we pray for the service and for the offering. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given to us. We know that even though this, uh, this text was uh, penned 2,000 years ago, it applies to us. The truth that you give does not change. It can never change because it is from the author of truth himself, which is you. So, Father, I pray that you will give Jason the wisdom and the knowledge to take this text and to preach it faithfully to us so that we can learn all the ways you have for us, so that we can follow your son Jesus more closely. Father, and I pray as you would take this offering that you've given to us, that you'll, uh, you'll take it, you'll use it, you'll multiply it, and you'll continue to build your kingdom here in Charleston and all across the world. Amen. We will be in Mark chapter 2 today. Derek just read our sermon text, and we're going to be in those three passages. And the title of today's sermon is simple. It's three questions. Jesus, on the hills of his two miraculous healings of a paralytic and of a leper that we saw last week at the end of chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, has established his power and authority as he begins his earthly ministry. And he has some, there are some antagonists. He has some enemies now, and they are going to oppose him. And they come at him with three specific questions. Our main overarching theme of the text today is a simple one. It's that Jesus changes everything. Um, There are multiple people and people groups listed in today's passage. uh, But for our purposes, we're really going to look at them in two specific categories. We have Jesus and his disciples, and then we have the Pharisees. Uh, This week, we're going to see that he is not only able, as Mason delivered last week, he's not only able to heal, he's not only able to change the world, but this week we are going to see that he is willing and he is more than willing. Uh, As we, I'm going to, I'll read the first few verses again, and then we're just going to jump into 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, and here's our first question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is the first appearance of really the main earthly antagonist in Jesus' life. This is the first appearance in the Gospel of Mark of the Pharisees, a very self-righteous sect of Judaism. And they have a big problem with Jesus in this first passage, and it's over who he eats with. Um, And I'll be honest with you, when I was studying this passage, I had a phenomenal time because I spent a good chunk of my time thinking about this passage in light of the hit cinematic classic, Mean Girls. Um, and it, it's, I, I'm not going to say that it's like a great thing to do, but I am going to say that I don't think there's been enough biblical scholarship on the comparison of Mean Girls and the first century Pharisees. So if anybody wants to jump on that, you can. But it's kind of, I mean, why does he eat with them? Why does, why does he sit with us? Why don't, why, you can't sit with us. We wear, we wear beige tunics on Thursdays. You know, like, I, I, there, there are a lot of parallels here, and I think that the Lord is really speaking through Regina George. Um, 
but that's just me. Um, but this is an interesting scenario. Uh, this is one that theologians would say got Jesus killed. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Uh, and you can kind of remove your Christian theological lenses. From the outside in, it doesn't make a lot of sense that they killed Jesus. Like, he is the only guy who can raise dead people to life. He can turn a couple loaves of bread and a couple pieces of fish into enough food to feed over 5,000 people. He can touch lepers, and instead of receiving leprosy, he heals the leprosy. He is the one guy that you want to keep healthy. He's the one guy that you want to keep safe. If there's a natural disaster, you are storing him away with 40,000 vials of his blood. He's the guy you want to keep alive, yet they killed him. And it doesn't make a lot of sense from the outside in why they would kill him and why they would not want him to be alive. Now, we, in, in Christian theology, we know, and we can, we, can, uh, we can work that out, and we understand why Jesus had to die. But from the outside in, we can see why they wanted to kill Jesus, because Jesus flips the world upside down on its head. You don't want to keep him alive if he completely changes the world and completely changes the religious and socioeconomic statures that you find yourself in. So with our American cultural lenses on, uh, let's kind of look at this passage a little bit. The main problem and the main question they come to him in this passage is, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, for us, that doesn't seem like a big deal, even if, even if we can look at tax collectors and sinners and go, you know what, yeah, they're terrible people. But we still share meals with terrible people all the time. We share meals with people that we don't like all the time. Um, some of you, not me, would call that Thanksgiving. <laughs> not, I, I, I wouldn't say that. But you, it, it's common for us in our culture to not think too highly of breaking bread with someone, of sharing a meal with someone. But in first century Middle Eastern culture, and in many cultures across the world today, the sharing of a meal is a deeply significant act. Um, Kenneth Bailey He's an expert on Middle Eastern culture, uh, and, and he's written a lot of really cool commentaries on Jesus in, in the Gospels and kind of putting it into cultural context. He says, to eat with another person in the Middle East is a sacramental act signifying acceptance on a very deep level. And this it's precisely what Paul's beef with Peter is in Galatians 2, if you're familiar with the epistle uh, to the church at Galatia. Peter is eating with the Jews and refuses to eat with the Gentiles. And it's not because he just identifies with the Jews a little more and he gets along with them a little more and doesn't really get along with the Gentiles. No, he is essentially not welcoming the Gentiles into fellowship. And Paul rebukes him for his racism in that. Because ultimately, sharing a meal with someone in the Middle East is welcoming them deeply into fellowship, considering them your equal, and not refusing them, not looking at them as a societal reprobate. Sharing a meal, it's, it's not us agreeing to a coffee date with the Mormon missionaries so we can debate theology. As fun as that might be, we're not welcoming them into fellowship because we know that sharing a meal is just sharing a meal. But sharing a meal here is welcoming someone deeply into fellowship. And Jesus is doing it with tax collectors and with sinners. And it's important for us that we, we understand what that means. What is the big deal about him eating with tax collectors and sinners? Shouldn't we eat with sinners? Yes, we, 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 would, we would echo a yes. We should eat with people who don't identify as us. We should love people who don't agree with us. We should uh, share time and 
we should fellowship and we should enjoy life with people who are not like us. But it wasn't that way in this culture, especially when you look at exactly who Jesus was eating with, tax collectors and sinners. And these were some real nasty sinners, traditionally and in context. Traditionally, these were often, a lot of these people were probably people that you would consider sinners even out of Middle Eastern context. They were people that you don't have to be a Christian and you would consider them to be pretty bad people. Uh, Just, you know, your normal people who live lives of horrible self-indulgence, immorality, impurity. These were also people who refused to follow the legalistic standards set by the Pharisees. But then there is a second group of people here. And it's an interesting group of people here. These are the tax collectors. It's who Levi is. And I, I, I don't know, but I grew up in, uh, I grew up in the Christian church uh, for decades, and I went, to, uh, I went to a ton of vacation Bible schools, and I sat through a ton of Sunday school classes. And I went through a ton of Bible lessons that had to do with tax collectors. And typically, tax collectors were just presented as kind of just dishonest people, people who would steal a little more than they should have, and just people who would just kind of shave some off the top so they could line their pockets. And while that's true to an extent of tax collectors, for us to see how scandalous the grace of God is here in eating and welcoming these sinners into fellowship, we need to understand how really awful these people were, and it's so poignant with the tax collectors. So if, if you remember at this time, God's people, this is we're dealing with Israel. We are dealing with the Jews here. We, at this time, God's people, Israel, they are under occupation by the Roman Empire. Israel is a very nationalistic people. It is, Jerusalem is, the, Israel is their land. They're in Jerusalem right now. It's their capital. This is kind of the consummation of the kingdom of God. The temple is there, which signifies God's presence. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that Israel was exiled multiple times for their disobedience to God. And now they've been brought back. They're they're finally back in their land. The temple's been rebuilt, but they're now under Roman occupation. So it's not really their land. They are being oppressed. And they are being oppressed by a brutal, brutal regime. Um, The Roman Empire, in its heyday, most estimates have it stretching from modern-day England to modern-day India, which is a vast amount of land. It's kind of, there's, there's no empire that is that large today. That, is, that, that spans multiple cultures, multiple people groups. It spans an incredible amount of space. So the question is, how does an empire like Rome handle that much land, that many different people groups, and that much space? How does it occupy it for a significant amount of time without planes, I mean, England to India right now, we have planes now, and that's still like a seven to eight hour plane ride. That's a huge amount of space. So how do they occupy without planes, without cruise missiles, without tanks, without automobiles, without email or or whatever you would use to occupy people? I don't use email that much. How, how, How do you do that? You do that with a massive, massive, massive army. So that begs the question, how do you fund that massive army? You fund it through taxes. And you fund it through a lot of taxes. So, putting the tax collectors in context, the tax collectors would be your kinsmen. 
They would be your neighbors. They would shop at the market that you shopped at. They would live in the neighborhood that you lived at. You grew up with them. The differences, the tax collectors, in, in this nationalistic group of people, the tax collectors were collaborators with a brutal Roman empire that was rampant with human rights abuses. The Roman Empire, oftentimes, it was not uncommon at all for them to sack an entire village and hang the bodies along the highway to quell any hint of rebellion. They were brutal, they were ruthless, and they showed no mercy. And the tax collectors, your kinsmen who lived in your neighborhood who you grew up with, went to that empire and bought the rights to take out taxes from you to fund that brutal regime so that they could continue to rule in your area. All the while, probably taking off a nice little percentage off the top. So they, were, they have to take 30 bucks, they take 50, and they pocket the extra 20. These were dishonest thieves, but these were also traitors. And a nationalistic Jewish people hated tax collectors. They were despised. They were social reprobates. The Jews thought that the Messiah was going to come to deliver them from the Roman oppression. But the Messiah came to dine with sinners. The Messiah came to, d- to dine with social reprobates. The wor- There's really no modern-day comparison to what a tax collector is. I, 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 I genuinely can't. I was trying to think of what, what would a tax collector look like in modern-day American society, and I can't think of one. I mean, I can't think of someone who could live in it, could betray our country, could betray our kinsmen, live in it, live in indulgence and immorality and just get away with it and be at the same time empowered by an oppressive human rights abusing regime. But these were these tax collectors and Jesus dined with them. Jesus welcomed them into fellowship. Jesus counted them as his equal. And this scandalous grace changes things because Jesus He was and is a different Messiah than the Jewish people were expecting. He didn't come to revolutionize political power, but he came instead to save sinners and welcome them into fellowship. Look what it says to Levi. In verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. He didn't ask for Levi's permission, but this Messiah comes down and radically saves the worst of the worst. He didn't come to call the well. He didn't come to save the righteous, but he came to save the unrighteous, meaning that he came to save those who knew they were destitute. He came to save the social reprobates. He came to to save those who, in their humility, needed salvation. Now, the Pharisees did as well, and there are many times that Jesus preaches grace to them. But right here, we see this radical, scandalous grace of God. So on the hills of last week, when, when Mason showed us that God is more than able, that Jesus is more than able to save, as he, as he touches the man with leprosy, and instead of contracting leprosy, he heals the man with leprosy, as he heals the paralytic, we, we see his authority in full. So the question that begs to be asked is, okay, he's able, but is he willing? And we see here that he is more than willing because the social reprobates, the tax collectors, the, fair, the, the, the sinners, those people who had been shunned to the outskirts of society, the lowest of lows on the caste system, Jesus comes and he dines with them and he fellowships with them. Uh, many scholars believe Levi in this passage uh, is actually Matthew who penned the gospel of Matthew. So we see this scandalous grace that Jesus gives. 
Jesus comes and he radically changes people's lives. And, we, and, and it's also an exhortation. If, if you've been touched by the grace of Jesus, you've been touched by the scandalous grace, your life will inevitably change. As we see, Levi went from a traitorous tax collector, an immoral man, to pinning a gospel that we read every day. We see this radical grace. Um, some scholars claim that Jesus ate his ways, ate his way through the gospels. It really, if you, if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, food is almost in every event that happens. He's always at a meal. He's always at a banquet. He's always feeding somebody. He's doing this. He's doing that. We go to the Last Supper uh, in, at the end of the Gospel of John, him eating breakfast with the disciples. He is always eating, uh, which I kind of like because I'm always eating. Um, but this, and, and then there's a, a theme of food in each of the three passages we're going to look at today. And what this harkens to, especially this dinner here that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, it harkens to Revelation 19, where there, there is this great messianic banquet where Jesus is eating with people from all people groups, all tongues, all tribes, all nations, sinners from all over the world Jesus is eating with in paradise. And that's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus welcomes people into fellowship who do not deserve to be welcomed into fellowship. Jesus welcomes people into fellowship who have royally, royally messed up. Jesus didn't come to raise the religious standard, but he came to change the religious standard. He didn't come to add more laws and add kind of more, this, this bigger weight of righteousness that we must achieve to be considered right with God, but he came to change the standard altogether. Uh, the crowd see what Jesus is doing in verses 13 through 17, and they are, they're confused. Probably the, the general crowds are confused. It's like, we don't eat with those people at the lowest of lows on the caste system, so why you, this man of great power, this man of great stature, why are you welcoming them into fellowship? Why are you considering them as your equal? And then you have the Pharisees who are outright angry. This is violating their societal norms. This is flipping it on their head. Suddenly, they who have kept the law, they who have memorized the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they, a, a Pharisee in modern day had memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. They had memorized, like, try memorizing Leviticus this week. Good luck. It, try reading Leviticus this month. I mean, like, no, no, here's the thing. There are small groups in this church. I can guarantee you without even thinking about it that no small group in this church is doing a study through Leviticus right now. Not that you shouldn't, but it's a little dense. And these guys had it memorized. These guys were righteous upon righteous in terms of works, yet they were not welcomed into fellowship the way that the sinners and the tax collectors were so warmly welcomed into fellowship with Jesus. So they ask him another question. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So, once again, it's important to put this into this first century context. These people are a nationalistic people. They are oppressed by a brutal Roman regime. They do not have their homeland in their control. Their lives are deeply restricted in a lot of ways. They have some freedoms. They actually have some more freedoms than the average Joe under the Roman Empire, but it, they are greatly restricted. They are abused. This regime is brutal. 
And in this time, it was thought that vigorous fasting was a foolproof way to earn God's favor and to incite God to act. So John's disciples and the Pharisees are both fasting at this time. They are desiring through fasting to get God to act to bring about deliverance for them from the Roman government. They are fasting for God's deliverance. That is, that is their main desire. So they come to Jesus, and you can kind of understand their logic here. In their broken theology, they're thinking, okay, we're fasting because we, we believe that the Messiah is one to come who will deliver us politically through a revolution, restore our land to us, and bring about and usher in the kingdom of God. So they're fasting for deliverance. And so they come to Jesus and they go, do you, why aren't you fasting? Do you not care about the deliverance of God coming? Are you not concerned with our welfare? Look at these abuses. Look at where we're at. Look at how poorly we are treated. Do, do you not care? And Jesus' answer is an interesting one. Jesus is always concerned with your circumstances. Always. It's undeniable. There is, there, is, there is tons of ink that was spilled in your Bible that talks about social justice, that talks about social welfare. Jesus is always concerned with making, the lot, with making earth better. Theologians talk about this principle of re-Edenizing. That's what the kingdom of God being instituted is, meaning that uh, as the kingdom of God pushes back on darkness, this is actually a re-Edenization, meaning that we are taken back to Eden. That the Lord is restoring all things. He's making all things new. And he is taking us back to the way things were designed. I mean, that he is taking us back to Adam and Eve in the garden, walking in perfect communion with God. Where things were perfect. Where there was no sin. Where there was no death. Where there was no suffering. Jesus is always concerned with your circumstances. And he is always concerned with deliverance from those circumstances. But he is ultimately concerned with the greater deliverance. So Jesus responds. He responds in interesting fashion. He asks, basically, why would the wedding guests, why would they fast when the bridegroom is here with them? It's a time for celebration and joy. Why would they fast and mourn when the bridegroom is here? Jesus sees his kingdom as a wedding together between God and his people. And when God is with his people, there's no reason for fasting and mourning for God's deliverance because God's deliverance has come. And Jesus moves on and he paints, he makes one large point with two vivid pieces of imagery. First, he mentions sewing an old cloth together with a new cloth. No, verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Then he moves on. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the, skin, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And this brings us to our second point. Jesus changes everything by bringing about the most necessary deliverance through a new covenant. So the Pharisees and John's disciples, they're fasting so that God would deliver them by sending a Messiah who would free them from this Roman oppression, restore their land, and institute the kingdom of God here on earth. 
They're fasting for the Lord's deliverance. But Jesus comes, and he's not fasting. And he says, there is one day that the bridegroom will be taken from the wedding. He will be taken from his guests. And Jesus is foretelling his death. Jesus is foretelling the deliverance that the Pharisees and that Israel and that the entire earth so desperately needed. While Israel wanted deliverance politically, what they truly needed was deliverance spiritually, and that's what the real Messiah came to deliver. Just like, just like the Pharisees, just like John's disciples, just like Jesus' disciples, we too need deliverance. The, the, the biggest problem is not your circumstances. The biggest problem was not their oppression by the Roman government. The biggest problem is not, the biggest problem is not poverty. The biggest problem is not any circumstance you find yourself in. The biggest problem in your life is that you are unclean before God. And everything flows from that. That's why Jesus comes to deliver us spiritually. Because when we are delivered spiritually, naturally the social deliverance will flow. But Jesus comes to make people clean. Um, under the old covenant, which is what the Pharisees were under, which is what all of God's people were under at this time, the Pharisees were, they were to follow an overwhelming amount of laws. Over 600 laws we find in the Torah. And they were, a lot, they were in a lot better shape than most people were. Romans chapter 2 and 3 talk about the Pharisees being these recipients of divine blessing and divine grace, the recipients of the oracles of God. They are the, inherit, they are the recipients of this divine inheritance. They have the laws. They have this truth. They know the way the world was designed to work. Therefore, they are far more blessed than those who don't know the way the, don't know the, way the world is designed to work. There were, there were really three different set of laws that we find in the Torah of the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. We have civil, ceremonial, and moral law. All of them, but especially ceremonial law, dealt with a temporary solution to make man clean before God. But it was just temporary, and ultimately the law, just like sin, was a curse. Because despite your best efforts, the law only at the end of the day would show you how far short you are to measuring up. How impossible it was for you to keep it perfectly, how you had not kept it perfectly, and how insufficient you were. The law was an oppressor, and they were under the curse of the law. And ultimately, it showed that they weren't clean. All, there, there were all these cleanliness laws that were impossible for mankind to fulfill, and they were eternally unclean and eternally separated before God. But Jesus came to change that with a new covenant. Um, Hebrews 8, I'm going to flip there. You don't have to flip there. I'll read it for you. Hebrews 8, 6 through 13 alludes to this covenant. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old covenant. He mediates a better promise. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. With the house of Israel with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, 
and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In Leviticus 17:11, God says to Moses, For the life of a creature is in the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Excuse me, I'm going to read that again. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Jesus' new covenant with us was established by shedding his innocent blood for us, covering our sin, fulfilling the law in full. Jesus makes us clean. In the Old Testament, temporary, temporary cleanliness was brought about by an innocent lamb, its blood being shed on an altar before God. But Jesus was the ultimate innocent lamb. His blood shed on the cross for us in our place to absolve completely the wrath of God, thereby fulfilling the law of God and making us clean before God if we would trust in Christ. And this is the new wine in the old wineskins. The new wine is this new covenant. And Jesus is saying, you can't put this new wine in old wineskins. You can't graft this new covenant into the old covenant. You can't, you can't go, all right, I'm going to follow all these laws plus Jesus, and I'll be okay. Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm doing a new thing. Trust me. Look, at, look to this new covenant. And on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, we look back at it and we trust. We don't try to graft the Christian life into our old life. As we see with Levi, as we see with the tax collectors, when we encounter this new covenant, our lives are changed forever. So the exhortation today is don't try to graft two things together because the old wineskins will burst and you'll be worse off than you were before. Jesus has come to bring about a new covenant. Jesus has come to make us clean. And Jesus came ultimately, just as he wasn't fasting for deliverance from Rome, Jesus came ultimately to deliver his people from their sinful oppression to sin and death. He came to deliver them from the curse of sin and from the curse of the law. Jesus came to free his people. He came to deliver his people. And from that, their deliverance from Rome would eventually follow. Just as for us, the ultimate problem for you is not your circumstances, but your ultimate problem is sin. Your ultimate problem is the sin that dwells within you, the sin that dwells in your heart, and it will make your life miserable. This is not a prosperity gospel message, but I promise you, if you want your life to get better, at least generally, a life of righteousness is a much, 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 much safer bet. It's a 100% bet. You will have more joy through worshiping Jesus than you will through following your own desires. So trust in this new covenant. Don't try to graft the two things together, but let the new wine go to the new wineskins. And this is what he's preaching to the Pharisees. There is an old way, but I'm doing away with the old way. I'm fulfilling the law that you could not keep, that could not make you clean, and I will make you clean. Trust in that deliverance. And finally, Jesus didn't come just to deliver us and leave us on our own, but he has come to guide us into joy. Um, the Sabbath, as we see in verses 23 through 27, um, the Sabbath ran from sunset Friday to sunset on Saturday, and the Jews were commanded to set it aside as holy unto the Lord. Uh, they were to abstain from every kind of work since God himself rested on the seventh day of creation. 
But the commandment in general is not precise in details about what it means to rest from work. It just says to rest from your work and to remember your deliverance from slavery in Egypt. So the Pharisees, fearing that they would violate this law and also wanting to instill in them a sense of self-righteousness, they added a whole host of extra-biblical commandments around the Sabbath. So the Sabbath says, don't work on the Sabbath day, but instead rest. So the Pharisees said, okay, we won't work, and we're not even going to get close to working. There were limits on how many steps you could take per day. Um, If you wanted to get water from the well, you were prohibited from using a rope to bring the bucket up. You had to instead use your belt. Um, There were all these just ridiculous, extra-biblical, legalistic commands that the Pharisees imposed on God's people, and they really imposed it and delivered these commands to them as gospel. You had to follow these things. And Jesus and his disciples, as we see in 23 through 28, what are they doing? They are walking through the grain fields, and they're hungry, so they pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, with the third question, say, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Um, The Pharisees saw Jesus and his disciples as working on a couple different levels. Number one, they were traveling. They were exceeding that daily quota of steps that you could hit. So they were probably using their Fitbit. Um, I would love to see Jesus in a Fitbit. Um, That's beside the point. Uh, They were also reaping, plucking heads of grain, qualified as reaping. They were reaping and traveling. Thereby, they were working doubly. They were working and they were working hard. And the Pharisees, with these extra, biblical, these extra biblical commands that they had imposed on people, saw them as being unlawful. So what does Jesus say? Another interesting answer. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So Jesus references 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, when David and his men were hungry, so they went into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. And while it was not normal for David or his men to do this, Scripture nowhere condemns their actions, and ultimately they were hungry. They were starving, so they ate. And in the Pharisees' minds, it is better for one, or it is better for Jesus and his disciples to go hungry and to starve than it is to break their extra-biblical commands. And Jesus answers as he, goes to, as he goes on in verses 27 through 28, and he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to bless man, not man made to bless the Sabbath. Meaning that the Sabbath was made for man's good. This commandment from God to rest and to remember is actually for man's good. It's not God just randomly, arbitrarily imposing rules on life, but it's made for man. It's made for his good, it's made for his rest, and it's made for his worship. That's why in the Deuteronomy chapter 5 telling of the Sabbath command, the writer spends lots and lots and lots of words. It's actually the longest command of the entire Ten Commandments. And he talks at length about on the Sabbath remembering their slavery. 
The command to Israel is to rest, but ultimately the command to Israel is to remember that it was the Lord who delivered them from slavery. It is to lead Israel into worship. Jesus did not impose this command to lead Israel into a burdensome law that they could not keep, but he imposed it so that Israel would worship and remember. Because he knew the way he designed mankind. He knew they were designed to worship. And that's where their ultimate joy would be fulfilled at. Therefore, the Sabbath was made for man to give man joy for man's good, for rest from their labor, for worship, for peace. Man was not made to bless the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And that leads us to our final point. Jesus changes everything by allowing us to see that God is for our good and our joy in all things. I'll invite the band back up as we begin to close. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He determines what is lawful and unlawful and what is right and what is not right. What Jesus says goes, and as we have seen so far in Mark, he has authority over all things to impose that. So Jesus determines what is lawful because he is Lord. But Jesus also has created all things for our good and for our joy, just like the Sabbath. It was for man's good. It was for man's joy. It was for man's peace. And all of his commandments, all of his creation is created from that same vein. His commandments to you, whatever they may be, whatever it might be that you have trouble reconciling in your mind, why would a loving God command that and not this? Why would a loving God have this position on this issue? It would be so much easier if it was this. Ultimately, we have to trust that Jesus is Lord. We have to trust that Jesus commanded what he commanded for our good and for our joy. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If you're trusting in Christ today, I can promise you, Jesus is working all things for your good, for your joy, for your eternal, daily, deep joy, and for his glory. That's good news for us. So as we close, we look back and rest in the fact that Jesus does change everything. He changes everything because he welcomes sinners from the the least of these to those who are too prideful to admit their faults. He welcomes sinners into fellowship and he dines with them. And one day he will dine with them in eternity with all people and all tongues and all tribes and nations together dining with the Messiah in heaven. He changes everything by giving us the deliverance we truly need, which leads to deliverance we need on a secondary level. He delivers us spiritually. He changes everything by instituting a new covenant. And finally, Jesus changes everything by reorienting our minds to see that his laws and his design for life is not to restrict us, but is ultimately to lead us into more joy and for our good. The Lord has been good to us. So I'm gonna pray and let's worship him for his goodness for his power, and for his willingness to save. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are kind and gracious. We thank you that you you sit with sinners. That you sit with us in the depth of our sin. You sit with us in the depth of our hurt. That, Lord, when it's it's 3 a.m. and we're hurting and we feel alone, that, Lord, you sit with us. And that you can empathize with our weaknesses. You can empathize with our pain because all of our sin was poured onto you on the cross. 
we thank you that you've made us clean through a new covenant. That you've declared us clean by your blood. You've declared us clean by taking on our sin and giving us your righteousness, fulfilling the law for us. And we thank you that you have designed things for our good, for our joy, and for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that we grasp onto those truths, that we rest in the knowledge that you are for us and that you love us. It's in your name we pray.